On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything factor meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hello and welcome to another episode of Moments That Rock with me, your host, Tony Michaelis. We're part of the Pantheon Group of Podcasts where you can source lots of brilliant music-based podcasts. On today's show, a gentleman by the name of Dennis McNamara. Dennis was instrumental in um, breaking bands in the 80s, to put it mildly. Uh, he was programme director from a radio station called WLIR, based in Long Island, transmitting over New York and places, and incredibly influential. We had Ellen Goldfarb on the programme a uh, few weeks ago, telling her story about the film she made, Dare to be Different, which is well worth listening to as well. Dennis will be back with uh, more, but uh, to start, let him tell you a little bit about the station and himself. Hi, I'm Dennis McNamara, and uh, I've been around the, the music world for quite a long time. Um, I started WNYU-FM when I went to university in New York when I was growing up. And uh, from there, I, I worked for a while at my favorite radio station, which was uh, WNEW-FM, but I worked in the news department. So I worked for FM and AM, working on traffic and uh, basically uh, being an assistant in the news department. And uh, during my time there, I met some people um, and um, really um, enjoyed working with them. And um, because of that, Scott Muni and the GM at the time, Varner Moss, and Scott Muni was the PD and uh, a very famous announcer in New York, recommended me because uh, I wanted to work at WNEW-FM. And he used to listen to my tapes and he said, you know what, you should, uh, you should get some seasoning which was really outstanding because a guy, you know, of that, that, you know, hugeness <laughs> taking time out for this annoying kid from NYU. So 
it was great. And he made a phone call for me and he helped me get my interview at LIR, um, which was WLIR of Garden City, Long Island, which was the progressive rock station serving the Long Island market. Not nearly as big as any W, 3,000 watts, as opposed to the 50,000 watts Goliaths in New York. And uh, I went to work there on a part-time basis, did a couple of overnights, uh, and... Uh, wrote like public affairs stuff and, and engineered their public affairs shows and was a general um, assistant. Now, at the time, I was also working at Channel 11 in New York. I was a journalism major at NYU, so I was writing news. My friend and I, Richard Roth, who's since become a famous CNN guy, well, we um, were basically producing the Sunday show on Channel 11, the news show, as silly as that was, two college kids doing it. But... Um, it was great experience. I loved it. And uh, and also, we were both working at a place called Sports Phone, which was basically, basically for our betters back in those days, pre-internet. And um, you could get the scores of games and the race results from the tracks and things like that. You'd call. It was actually some kind of uh, ad agency set it up for the phone company. And you'd call and you'd hear, you know, my voice or someone else's voice telling you the latest scores. And it was incredible, um, uh, incredible uh, learning experience because you had to do it exactly 58 seconds. So, you know, I learned a, a lot about tightness and, and brevity and things like that. And uh, I did that for a while. In fact, I did that when I left WNYU. I should mention, though, I started a series of WNYU broadcasts from uh, the bottom line. I went in and I met with Alan and Stanley, the owners. And we set up remotes there so that we could record shows. And we recorded an immense amount of people. I mean, just incredible, because if you know the history of the bottom line, it was one of the greatest clubs in that particular period of time in New York, which was around, uh, it was actually from 1970 to 1974. And then I went to NYU in 70, I mean, I went to LIR in 74. And um, through that, and working at NEW, I didn't sleep much, but I did um, make an enormous amount of uh, connections. People were impressed with the success of the series and also what WNYU was doing. We were, we were a good little station and we'd have uh, a lot of, um, because we were in the village, a lot of the local characters uh, popped by, Phil Oaks, the National Lampoon guys, which of course was Belushi and all of them, Chevy Chase. And I remember um, I did an interview with Yoko Ono because nobody else wanted to do an interview with Yoko Ono. And, and I was thrilled beyond belief when she told me that John loved it um, because John was my favorite Beatle. And, um, and basically, it was an exciting time. I met the Who for the first time. I was a Who nut. And John Entwistle kind of adopted me and let me do an interview when they weren't doing interviews. So, I mean, I had really exciting times there. And I managed to graduate school, you know, come loud and all of that. And I, I got my journalism degree. So it was a great time. It was an exciting time. Um, I, um, I learned so much. And then I went to LIR and it was a different environment entirely. I don't know if the excitement of that time has actually ever been captured. They tried to with that show on HBO vinyl, but it never quite caught it. And I, I, I really was disappointed because it was all around my turf at that point in time. A friend of mine that worked at a record company said, you need to meet Jimmy Iovine. He wants to meet you. And Jimmy and I became really fast friends because we love music. And 
he brought me in. I met Bruce Springsteen the first time with Jimmy and Ronnie Spector the first time. And uh, and Jimmy came out and he used to bring records out and test them on the air and stuff. And I remember he called me and said, I, I, I made this Petty record and I think it's really, really great, but I want you to hear it and tell me what you think. And I remember driving into uh, town and sitting down and listening to Damn the Torpedoes and going, Jimmy, I'm going to put five tracks on the air. <laughs> I can, as soon as I can have this, can I take it with me? And he went, no. But I mean, those were, you know, I think back on it, Jimmy would come out and do shows with me and things like that. And, uh, and God bless him. He's done really, really well. And I'm really happy for him because he was an incredible source of energy for the music business at that point in time. And he knew everybody. And he's obviously produced some great records, to say the least. And we had a YouTube connection which I'll get to later, but I guess to continue, I worked at LIR, um, got married, uh, moved to Long Island and worked at LIR full-time, uh, basically doing a lot of overnights because they wanted me to become music director. They knew the music director at LIR was going to go work for um, CBS Records. So it was, it was a, a good transition, a positive transition. One of the reasons I got hired was <laughs> that they had a concert series, the longest running weekly radio concert series in the country. And they were very aware of what I had done at the bottom line. And they wanted me, part of the job of being the music director was you set up and coordinated and produced the radio concert series every Tuesday night. It started in a studio called Ultrasonic Studios in Long Island, which was around the corner from L.I. Quite famous studios because Billy Joel started there, did his first album there. Uh, many, um, many of Shadow Morton, if you look him up, he's a great producer. And I got to induct him into the Long Island Music Hall of Fame. He's since passed away, but a wonderful guy. He basically produced bands out of that little studio that went on to become huge successes. The Shangri-Las, Iron Butterfly. For a period of time, it was a very revolutionary place. And LIR was doing, it started the concert series, basically there and at a club called My Father's Place, which was in old Roslyn, Long Island, run by a legendary promoter named Michael Epi Epstein. Um, and he'll come into the story a little later, too. But um, when I, and I, the early recordings LIR did from Ultrasonic included Little Feet, which has become a famous album. Um, and annoyed Lowell George years later because he thought it was the most popular uh, bootleg of all time and he thought it hurt his record sales. Hmm, not sure about that. I think um, bootlegs basically are bought by people who uh, are completists who like to have everything by the artist. So they've probably got his albums as well as his bootlegs. Anyway, you've been listening to Dennis McNamara on Moments That Rock with me, Tony Michaelis. We'll be back with Dennis and more of his stories after this. There was a lot of support for the Long Island artists, many of which people don't realize came from Long Island. Long Island was a hotbed of great music at the time, but most of them got, got viewed upon as New York artists because many of them broke out of the city, whether it was the downtown scene or, you know, the Brill, Brill building scene, because there were all kinds of people coming around at that point in time. In the meantime, LIR was a, a unique progressive station, different than any W. 
because LIR was in some ways a little more progressive. It also was more blues-based and Southern rock-based than the New York stations. And also, it because of the concert series, and, and I'm glad that I you know, continued the heritage of this, we ended up working with artists that wouldn't get played on most commercial FM stations in the country. Billy Joel did his first concert on LIR. It was a fill-in. We did shows with Fleetwood Mac, Lou Reed. It really, really turned into a hotbed where people wanted to be on the Tuesday night concert. Ultrasonic eventually ran into money problem was sold to the Isley Brothers. So that stopped our ability to come out of Ultrasonic and broadcast because the Isleys were doing their thing there and recording people. And um, so we went full-time to my father's place with occasional stops at the Nassau Coliseum and eventually other clubs on Long Island, like the Malibu Nightclub, which became very important in the Dare to be Different era, which was when we went full-time New Wave and was the first commercial station to do that on the East Coast of America. We worked with so many bands and became a very popular because our signal, even though it was on Long Island, our signal became um, came into the metropolitan area. It wasn't it wasn't a full fifty thousand watt signal, so it was erratic. For for some reasons, you could hear it clean as day on one hundred twenty fifth Street in Harlem. So we picked up some listeners in that neighborhood that you wouldn't have expected, which I found out over the years, which I thought was kind of brilliant. But um, we basically came into Queens. We hit some spots in Jersey. We were really hot in Westchester and Southern Connecticut, as well as Nassau County. Now, what happened, we went along and we were very successful. We hit the peak a couple of times because we crusaded for bands like Bruce Springsteen. I mean, we were there right next to NEW. Um, and NEW was like our big brother, especially because of my connection of being there. Um, but at times, you know, we were just ahead of the curve. And we became um, very popular for, I always had a thing for British music. I was a Beatles and Stones kid, you know, and then I was a Who and Zeppelin kid. And, you know, I grew up loving British music. And we were big into imports also in the 70s. And we continued on fairly successfully. And then we had a tragedy, a, a, a radio tragedy. Around um, 1979, 1980, you know, there's a movie. I know you've talked um, to the director of the movie. There's a movie called Dare to be Different, which was very successful, was a killer a success at Tribeca. We can talk about that a little bit in a while. But what I love about that is, is you had a fan making it. She was she grew yes. up on that station. Yeah, it was really cool. I mean, it was like a dream come true because I always wanted to make a movie about LIR. And Ellen, Ellen came through. She was my angel on that. And uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to your show with her. You were able to get acts on the way up that were appreciative of the fact that you were supporting them. And they were learning their trade while we were all learning ours. That's I mean, correct. I I grew up with you too. You know, I was learning to yeah. be a record player. Yeah. They were learning to be a band. You watch yeah. the mistakes, you watch the failures. And in fact, you might want to listen to my own podcast. There are four separate interviews with you too. My interview with Adam the Edge from just before the Unforgettable Fire. Malcolm Gary, who put together the crew for Red Rocks, talks about the story of Red Rocks. Neil Story from Ireland as the first press officer taken 
a journalist out to watch him play in front of just one person and things. And Dave Robinson, Dave is just a legend in himself. It's not until the roller coaster ends that you really start to appreciate all these things for what they were. And the industry was run by music people, the Blackwells, the Armored Ertigans, the Herb Alperts. It wasn't accountants and lawyers. We were running a really successful radio station at that point. I loved doing interviews. I loved introducing bands and concerts. I was just a fan that happened to be a professional program director at a very young age. And I thoroughly loved the music. And that was the most important part of my job, really, as far as I was concerned. I had a lot of other responsibilities, but that was the one that made me get up every day and love going to work. But here's the thing. I interviewed so many great bands. I had a relationship with The Who because of John Entwistle. I interviewed him at least four or five times. I'm in The Who history book. Townsend flew to New York to do two interviews. My mentor, Scott Muni at NEW, and me at LIR. And um, it was for the album, Who Are You? And it was just amazing. I, I floated in and out. And it's, it's just something I was so proud of because I knew my stuff. And Pete picked up right away that I was a true fan. And I knew, you know, I was, I was there from the beginning. And I'm still there to this day. I went to see them a few months ago. And it was terrific. It was just great. And um, I interviewed the Rolling Stones. And it turned out that Mick started to become a fan of LIR. And he was really, really pleased when I actually played his solo albums, which I was unknown to me. But, you know, because of that, the word got around. You know how that is. Also that I was a good guy. I was really into the music and I wasn't trying any sleazy moves or anything. I just wanted them to be part of the LIR experience, you know, everything that happened there. And, you know, sometimes I think I was blessed because I went to a Blind Faith concert when I was in high school. And Jimi Hendrix went in ahead of me with a ticket and he shook my hand. They did Madison Square Garden. And that was their first show in New York. Years later, Clapton did an interview. He said, Blind Faith was so weird. Jimi Hendrix had to have a ticket to get in. Because to me, it was proof. We didn't dream it. There were two guys with me. And the reason we were there was another guy coming from Yonkers was late and I had his ticket. So I couldn't go in, you know, to see whatever, whoever was opening. But I thought of that recently. I, to- I told that story on my radio show. And I, 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 I told you, I do a show. It's, you know, a pro bono show now. Um, pro bono. Pro bono, <laughs> pro, yeah. Pro bono show, uh, 90.1, every Friday with a, a fellow named Mark Green. And I started doing that show because a friend of mine called me the day Bowie passed away. And I was upset to say Yeah, me least. too. Yeah, I think we all were. I had the pleasure of hiding David Bowie one night because I was emceeing uh, Broadway shows that Joan Jett was doing. You know, for a while, people would do shows. I got to do a Lou Reed show also when he was in there. But I um, I came running in because traffic was bad. And I thought, oh, my God, I know how Broadway works. You know, you, you got to be on time. They're going to start straight up. And I got there on time and I came running into the dressing room and I went, Oh, I'm so sorry. I made it. I was caught in traffic. And everybody looks at me because David Bowie's sitting in the corner talking to Joan. And I'm like, holy. Kenny Laguna, who, you know, is um, uh, he's he's the, you know, partner with Joan. 
her manager, her producer, her um, Svengali in certain ways, and uh, a musical guy who's been around. I could talk about him for a long time, but um, he was a, a Shondell, so that tells you with Tommy James. But um, he, um, he came up to me and he said, can I talk to you outside? And we stepped outside and he said, look, David wants to watch the show, but he doesn't want to go on when the lights are on. So is it okay if he stands with you behind the curtain and then while you go out and do your welcome to the audience and then, you know, bring Joan on, he'll sneak off to his seat on the side. So here's Bowie and I behind the curtain whispering, telling stories. Of course, he listened to LIR. I always knew because now Rogers um, told me how he listened up in Connecticut. And I knew that he and Bowie, I found out he and Bowie were listening to LIR when they were doing the Let's Dance record. So, I mean, I always thought that was pretty cool. And of course, remember, that was an explosion. I mean, that was that was such a big album for us. We were so happy for David. This friend of mine called who used to work in the truck at LIR. He was an engineer. And he said, you know, I have a friend at Stony Brook. Maybe I could ask him if he can go on the air. Because I said to him, I said, I wish I could go on the air. Because one thing we always were proud about was if we went on the air, we'd suspend regular programming if things, you know, of enormity happened. And, you know, in, in the world of, of my radio career, you know, those kind of things stand out, whether it was the assassination of John Lennon, which was, you know, extraordinarily sad and um, an unbelievable. And I, I'm always grateful to Billy Joel because I had a hard time doing my show. He came up and did it with me. But in the case of Bowie, my friend Peter said, you know, I know a guy that works at Stony Brook. He's a big music fan. So maybe he'll uh, let you do the show with him. And the guy called me up, introduced himself. And we stayed on all night. And we did Bowie music all night and got calls from all over the world and everything because it's on the Internet. And um, since that time, he said, why don't you come do my show? with me? It's really enjoyable because, you know, I get to meet young people who are still interested in radio, despite everybody telling me nobody's interested in radio anymore. And um, I get to, you know, play new music and I kind of stay in touch with the music scene because of that, because I want to come in and know what I'm talking about. One of our listeners, when we started the new format, said, you know what I like about this station? It dares to be different. <laughs> Out of the mouth of babes. And so many people have taken credit for that for that slogan but it literally came from a listener and we all in back behind the mirror went oh my god what a slogan that's perfect you know we're dare to be different because i also used new music station i didn't want to use new wave i thought it was going to become dated we put the station on the air it kind of exploded i mean we really did something that i was very worried about also, a lot of our old listeners were really upset, and that was sad. I had to go try to explain to Billy Joel what we were doing, and Billy and I were very close, and uh, I don't know that I handled it as well as I could have. I always kind of think I could have done it better because I really cared about Billy, and Billy was really good to our station, all the way from being small to big. We were the connection between our listeners and the artists. I mean, we were... I guess people call us curators now and things like that. We were more than that. We were your friends on the radio. And you had to live up to dare to be different. You know, you can only make slogans work if you live up to them.
because people are smart and they're smarter all the time. They can see through that BS as quick as possible. And, and you know what? I felt proud because as we got more and more successful, it was clear from the research, the small research we could do showed people said we told the truth when we said we dared to be different because there was nobody else like us except, ironically, my old college station, WNYU, who are very early onto the new wave scene and deserve a lot of credit for that. They were much uh, punkier than us, but good for them. Good for them indeed. You've been listening to Dennis McNamara on Moments That Rock with me, Tony Michael. This Dennis will be back in a few weeks with uh, more stories from his career in WLIR and in radio in general. Thanks for listening. Subscribe, come back next week, and we'll see you then. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship. The studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.